On KB on Liberty, we talk with Robbie Suave, the author of a forthcoming book called Panic Attack. It takes apart the intellectual framework for the radical new left. We're going to talk about intersectionality. We're going to talk about Jesse Smollett. We're going to talk about how the radical left is eating itself with identity politics. Well, this is it. Um, and you just saw this book for the first time, right? Yes, I've never yeah. seen it in uh, live in uh, person. That, that, so let's, let's be shameless right on, up front and say Robbie Suave's new book, Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. And this comes out when? Yeah, middle of June. Middle of June. Middle of June. But you can pre-order it on Amazon right now if you're watching this show. That's right. Is that, is that fair? That's right. Please do. So I, I buried the lead. You're Robbie Suave, and uh, you are Tucker Carlson's best friend now because <laughs> because you've been talking about a lot about hoaxes, and uh, um, most most recently the J- Jesse. How do you say his name? Jesse's Jesse Smollett. Smollett. Yes. Smollett. Yeah, uh, you know it's been a crazy couple of weeks. Uh, the media has gotten a lot wrong. Certainly, that was an example of a story where there was this immediate rush to judgment or rush to believe, even though a lot of people uh, who pay attention to hate crimes, like myself, like a lot of people in conservative media, even many liberals and leftist writers, I was having private conversations with who who knew that there was going to be more to this story, uh, if not outright, it was going to be uh, uh, exaggerated or made up. Uh, and in fact, the evidence now suggests strongly that uh, it's Smollett, who claimed he was attacked by these Trump supporters late one night in Chicago, uh, that actually he paid the people to do it uh, to raise his publicity or for some reason like that. And the police, the evidence they have looks pretty overwhelming, but he's still innocent until, you know, proven guilty or whatever. But uh, Yeah, innocent until proven guilty. And I, I was wondering about that in the context of the... Uh, it was like the Chicago police chief or whoever that guy was, and he's visibly angry at the hoax. But he talked about it as if the case had been tried and proven. How does how does that work? Is because that that seemed a little wrong to me, even mm-hmm. even though apparently they have like a, a canceled check, right? That he that he wrote. I mean, by the way, don't 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 write checks, <laughs> right? Well, now he's now claiming the latest though is he's claiming that check was just paying the brothers to train him. Uh, to get him in better shape, which might that could be true, even if he still did arrange uh, for them to uh, to do this. And I and I think they've turned against him, and that's the, they're the sort of witnesses yeah. uh, that the police have against him. I'm a, a strong believer in due process. Um, the court of public opinion, obviously, there is not a you're not guaranteed due process the way you are uh, in the criminal system. So people can make up their minds prematurely if they want. Uh, I think it's important for the media always to use words like allegedly, reportedly, you know, here's the information we have. Uh, so, again, we're still going to wait for how this thing shakes out. But uh, but the police have strong reason to believe based on the very exhaustive investigation that they've done that he was involved in this himself. So And it I mean it certainly looks that way to me. Right. And and I have avoided, I think up until this day, um, saying much of anything about this. And I, I've I've learned sort of the hard way. I could go all the way back to 
this massive Tea Party rally that I organized, helped organize in 2009. And as I was walking up on stage, one of the activists handed me her phone, and it was a tweet that said, ABC News uh, estimates, two, I think it was two and a half million people uh, have shown up at this March on Washington. Uh, me being new to the idea that not everything on Twitter was true. Right. Um, I, I assume it was Twitter. When when was Twitter founded? I think Twitter was a thing in even late back in two thousand, late aughts, two thousand. Yeah. So seven, eight, somewhere. But I, but I but I I was trained to back in the old days. You read something in print, and right. you you assume it's been vetted. You assume that it's been fact checked, and so I just took it on stage and I read this as if it was a fact. ABC News says that there's two and a half million people here. Uh, turns out they didn't say that at all. So it was mo- like my first lesson in don't be stupid with um, by jumping on on things that you read on social media. Like check it out first. Yeah. Well, that's actually a little bit of the problem because uh, with the Smollett case, a lot of the reporters, uh, the mainstream reporters, in their in their writing at their like actual news websites, the articles they wrote were perfectly fine and were not jumping to conclusions and and they were using the careful language they're supposed to. But then social media allows these people to kind of blur the line then between reporter and activist at where they're they're making sort of more jump they're jumping to conclusion in their tweets and things like that. Right. So, you know, you're not being edited, right, when you're on social media. So right. so journalists who are perfectly good in their writing, it gets it goes through, it gets feedback, it goes through something before it's published. They don't have that same uh, that same process for dealing with people on social uh, for when they're posting things on their own social media pages. So uh, social media has, I think, contributed maybe to a blurring uh, between activism and reporting uh, involving the reporters themselves for that reason. Yeah, and and, and certainly the the most um, loud and maybe the most obnoxious and and the first to set the narrative. Right um, is is currently rewarded uh, certainly on on something like Twitter, um, but, yeah, but but I happen to be sort of a, a romantic about this stuff. I started off. Um, there's a cyber libertarian named John Perry Barlow who's who's one of my patron saints. It, everything he said about the potential of technology and the internet um, to create what he called a right to know. It was going to democ- radically mm-hmm. democratize the playing field so that you didn't have to go to Harvard to to to, to get the best knowledge. In the world, you could you could Google it. You could you could search. You could you could self-curriculate and create your own platform for learning things. Of course, that has morphed into sort of this 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 very angry clickbait, tribal silo thing that we see today. But I, th- I think we might work it out. But but certainly the yeah. sm- the Smollett story didn't help. It hurt. I never want to be too fatalistic about social media for just that reason. I mean, panics about new technology are often unfounded. And, you know, you can go back in time. There, You always have politicians, moderate politicians of both parties freaking out that, oh, kids are watching too much TV. Now it's kids are on their smartphones too often. And, you know, as a libertarian, I want to be really careful about not just condemning something because it's new, right? right. Uh, right. A lot of this reporting is often moral panic, is often people freaking out for no reason. 
social media has tremendous advantages. It allows, just like you said, the uh, the the allowing everyone to kind of consume and and proliferate information. Uh, it is so much easier to have conversations with people, you know, on, in different walks of life across the country, across the world, uh, to call out powerful people and hold them accountable if they're their statements that they're making on social media. You can actually interact with them, and if what you're saying is resonating with other people, they can, you know, they can favorite it, they can share it, they can like it, and it gets signal boosted. Uh, so that is, there's a lot positive to say about that, you know. Think about a couple decades ago, you'd have to what write like a letter to the editor or something and hope that the gatekeepers, you know, chose to highlight right, your perspective. Right. Uh, so in a lot of ways, it is good uh, there. But there are there are plus sides and there are downsides uh, to the technology people. It, it does also allow people to create little bubbles where they're only going to interact with like minded people. Um, and and also to consume information that is is factually inaccurate and to and to to and to be misled by it. Although the recent studies I've seen suggest that actually very few people do share uh, like what is objectively fake news. So that might be a little much. That might also be a moral panic. Yeah, yeah. So so I I've jumped ahead of myself as you may have noticed. I, I brought some some cool bourbon. Terrific. Um, and this um, this is one of my favorite new bourbons. It's uh, Weller Special Reserve. Um, if you paid retail for this, it would be considered really cheap bourbon, but it's also known as poor, the poor man's Pappy Van Winkle. Um, and I compared this to, to Pappy 12 just recently, and this, which probably retails for 29 bucks, is better than, than Pappy 12. Don't tell those guys that because it'll be upsetting. But uh, this is a drinking show. Um, we don't judge people who don't drink, but but you've you've acknowledged that that you once in a while. I have to admit that I do. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And it's a strategy because at some point when you're really comfortable and maybe a little liquored up, I'm gonna I have got you questions that are that are designed to embarrass you and and make people click on this this podcast. So you you see, you see it's coming at least you know. Cheers. Excellent. Cheers. And I wanted, um, honestly, your your book freaked me out a little bit. So I I wanted to have a little bit of of moral support as we got into this because it's um, some of the trends that you identify in panic attack. See, I'm learning even the name. Um, it's it's kind of freaky. It's kind of freaky. And and we we could we could sort of pivot from the the Smollett story. There's two most disturbing things about that entire story um, one is that a lot of the a lot of the people that so self-righteously used his story to to argue that America is becoming more racist and more violent and that this is really Donald Trump's fault um, haven't really backed down they they've actually said it doesn't really matter if it's true or not um, the narrative matters more um, and that seems that seems Orwellian to me. It, it seems super weird. Right. So part of what I was interested in kind of studying is, I would say, the hyperbolic freakout over, uh, over Trump being elected. Now, I am no uh, fan of the president. I disagree with a ton of his policies. Um, you know, part of my reason for writing this is that I actually am sympathetic to some goals of moderates and progressives. Um, it was, By the way, it was funny reading some of the resistance comments to your appearances on Fox News. <laughs> They assume that 
uh, that you actually have a multitude of MAGA baseball hats in your closet. Right, right. That I, yeah, I'm the one with, yeah, I've got all the hats and I'm only defending. Yeah, it, it, it's funny how many people assume I'm only defending people uh, like the Covington kids and so forth because I'm in sympathy with their policy views, which couldn't be further from the truth. Right. Uh, but actually, you know, actually being sort of a moderate or a libertarian or a, a libertarian centrist, I think allows me to call out some faults on both sides. And some people appreciate that, but partisans never do. Uh, so anyway, I for this book, I talked to a lot of, uh, of activists, uh, young activists, often college students, and uh, kind of caught up with them to see how they're responding to the Trump presidency, what their goals are, and, and where their ideas come from. You know, we've seen so much, I think, of the kind of shutdown culture evolving on college campuses over the, first, uh, over the last few years, and that was initially what drew me to this topic. Uh, young, progressive, activist-minded people turning on free speech in a way that would actually shock their uh, their activist ancestors, you know, free speech was just was a cardinal value to sort of 60s and 70s activists. Uh, yeah. They fought for free speech. They, they viewed free speech as part of their struggle. And uh, today's activists think free speech is something for white supremacists, for Richard Spencer, for Milo, and they don't want anything to do with it. And if you're and, and they also view words as a form of violence. So if you're going to invite someone to the campus who is going to make people feel uncomfortable, then it's almost as if you've thrown the first punch and our shutting down of this person is self-defense. Is So our, our violence or our in, un, uh, lack of civility is is perfectly morally legitimate. So shutting, shutting down a speech on a college campus has and, and morally righteously can involve actually hitting the guy so, Certainly. That, he, so that he doesn't talk. Right, because he's start, because they... By 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 expressing views that are that are offensive, those views are actually hurtful, and in 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 a broad, they're emotionally hurtful, and that is on the same spectrum as physical violence. So so you've started, and you know I've I've asked them, you know, do you think this is a smart tactic? Don't you think this could backfire against you? Don't you think this turns people off? But they don't care because it's about safety. Their primary goal is keeping their marginalized people. Uh, safe, safe from the rhetoric of offensive speakers, uh, of, of Donald Trump and his supporters, and safety, pri- for their first defense is of your emotions, of your, of your mental well-being. Um, so, so that's why those tactics are justified. And, you know, shutdown culture seems to have originated, and you, you would know the timeline better than me, but it didn't start with conservative group, groups sort of trolling them by inviting Milo. It started with with serious conservative academics, I would consider Charles Murray a, a serious conservative academic who who has a lot of interesting views, uh, provocative views, views that I don't like, uh, all of the gamut that you would expect from any serious person. Same, right? And it, it seems that they started going after guys like that, and and the the counter response by conservatives, well, let's find someone that will really, really trigger you and, and will we'll own you with, let's have Milo on campus. Absolutely. I mean, there's no question to me that conservatives have really uh, sort of embarrassed themselves in their reaction to this phenomenon because they realized, we're, so we're just going to invite the most controversial people, people who actually don't have a lot to say. Yeah. The point is for them to get shut down. I mean, there, there have been meetings of kind of conservative students on campus to admitting that they're doing this exact thing, uh, which is really uh, uh, frustrating uh, for, I think, advancing a dialogue about these ideas. At the same time, there is no sort of uh, differentiation on the left. The left 
you know, Charles Murray and Milo Yiannopoulos and Richard Spencer are the same person to, yeah. to many of the leftists. And, and, and maybe you, let's be honest. And maybe me. Yeah. And I would and I would say these speakers, each of them demand a very different response. I, I think Charles Murray, just like you said, I, I agree with, I think he's interesting and I agree with some of what he has to say. I very much disagree with, with other things he has to say. But he's a he's a thoughtful, intelligent person, and I think it's worth attending the event and listening and, and asking tough questions or having some kind of debate. Um, you know, for Richard Spencer, just don't show up. For Richard Spencer, the whole point of his, you know, he hopes people shout him down and throw things at right. him. If he has to give his his presentation to, like, two white nationalists and just an empty auditorium, it will be a failure for him. So you could, you that to me seems like the obvious response, but but... Many and you know I, I don't mean to characterize people too broadly, but many of the activist class on these campuses on the left think no, we have to show up, we have to shout down, we have to stop this event from taking place. It's a matter of people's safety. Yeah, and it, it's probably evolved from um, sort of the cynical tactics of of, of acolytes of Sololinsky, because his whole point was to kind of manipulate public opinion with street theater right. and and you know isolating bad guys and and probably creating unfalse Although it's stories about that. I tend to think that more conservatives know who Alinsky is than uh, than leftists or than the liberal activists. Um, because I think I've 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 certainly heard more conservatives reference Alinsky yeah, yeah. than I have uh, which is kind of interesting, right? I feel like maybe it, to some sense conservatives uh, um, absorbed his thinking and maybe they they might actually think it's more influential on the left than it is today. Um, I've, well, I've, I think it's a generational thing. I'd certainly, right. certainly Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were students of that style of politics. But that's what you're describing in, in your book um, taught me uh, one of the things. It's, it seems obvious to me that punching, sucker punching Richard Spencer, neo-Nazi, is a great way to make Richard Spencer more important than he is. And they don't seem to care. So there, it wasn't a strategic point on their point. It was, it was, a, it was a, a moral righteousness. It is right to sucker punch people that I disagree with. Right. And that, and that uh, strategically, as you point out in the book, is, is, a, is a disaster for them. It's a disaster for those of us that hate fucking Nazis. Right. Because now we're talking about Richard Spencer. And I didn't even know who he was until until that asshole punched him. And there's there's tons of evidence historically, statistically that uh, that violent protest is more likely to backfire that you know, protest that is vigorous and that is strong and people marching can can work, um, but that violent protest often triggers a kind of conservative reaction in the general uh, populace. And also there are you know the the there are examples throughout history of sort of Antifa, which is Antifa has been around since uh, the 30s at least. Uh, examples of Antifa just calling more attention to the people they're trying to shut down, uh, especially historically when the only way to find out about these groups would have been newspapers. Yeah. The newspaper has to write about the, 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 the shutdown or the attack on the white nationalist figure. So then people learn about this community. And, and actually, there, there are cases where their ranks increased uh, after they got shut down by, by an Antifa-type group because it generated more, uh, more media coverage. It's which, like the Streisand effect. W- w- which would be more of an Alinsky-style right. cynical manipulation of the media narrative. Um, but, but that's not how the people you describe in the book are thinking about the world anymore. They're thinking in a simpler, um, I'm, we're keeping our people safe, and that we have a right to, uh, to, uh, to th- that if, if the intolerant are, are going to have their say, 
um, it is going to result in our society becoming less tolerant. They're going to come and change our society. So it, it is okay for us to be intolerant of their views or to practice intolerance of them, to shut them down. It, it, it's safety. It, it's a self-defense sort of thing. And again, safety very broadly considered. They're thinking about their emotional health their mental health, they're more in tune with these problems than uh, students, than activist radicals of previous generations. They, they, they openly talk about mental health in a way that's not necessarily always bad. I mean, it, it's, it's good that we've destigmatized talking about mental health to some degree so that people who really need help are, are not afraid to ask for it and, and to get counseling if they need it or medicine if they need it. Uh, but you see many activists talk about mental health in such a like radically free way, it's almost, um, and also because being, uh, being the most victimized is a way to to gain power within activist circles. Because the most victimized person is the one who gets the most attention and who has the most authority to address any issue. So one way to be more victimized than other people is to suffer some kind of mental uh, health problem. And I I've seen like biographies of activists where they where the first detail they list about themselves is what uh, mental disorder they're suffering from. And again, I'm not I'm not you know I'm not trying to say it's bad to be open see, about see, these I, I things. Would, I would need, I would need pages on my resume to <laughs> to really dig into that. In, in my case, but, but there's almost there's almost a almost a desire to to yeah. have the affliction so you can compete with yeah. other marginalized people for for the most marginalized status. Well, that and, and that gets us back to the Jesse Smollett case, because reportedly he thought that this hoax was a good idea because it would build his star power and build his marketability and and force his uh, employers to give him more money. And and again, we don't know if that's true or not, but the but the logic of something like that is is so alien to me. But it's it comes from this sort of victim culture philosophy. It absolutely fits in with this philosophy. Um, I'm I'm hesitant to say that it definitely comes because these kinds of hoaxes have been around for for longer than this kind of victimhood power has existed. Um, it definitely it definitely connects to it and is an example of it. But um, but there have been you know I've been following these kinds of hoaxes on campus for for a decade at least and uh, and it's it, there are there are a lot of them it's really hard to know I, I and I've said this on the couple media appearances I've done this week uh, it's actually hard to know what percentage yeah. of these kinds of incidents uh, are fake there's just not reliable data at all and a lot so many of them are unsolved so you'd never know uh, I've seen plenty of fake ones I've seen real ones too. It's hard to make. Is uh, this guesses. exclusively um, college campuses that you're that you're focused on? So college campuses have you know have bias incidents that are often they wouldn't even be criminal. That's, mm -hmm. You know, if you write a, an obscene message on someone's whiteboard on their door, that might violate a college policy. That could get you in trouble. Uh, that wouldn't be a matter for the, that wouldn't be criminal the yeah. way that what they did to Jesse Smollett is obviously criminal. Right. Um, so so in a way, it's easier to get away with with whatever that is. And many of those have turned out to be questionable or I mean, like, you know, it, it can be something as simple as there was a there was a noose on on a woman's door and this was treated as a bias incident. But actually, it turned out it was a shoelace and someone had found a shoelace on the ground and thought, the shoelace should be on a door knob rather than the ground. It wasn't intent, you know. It was, it was neither a hoax nor was it an actual thing. It was just an accident. Yeah. And there's some of those too. Do, do you think there's a link between? And, and we're talking about and and let's let's put aside some of the some of the the triggering language that that some of us would argue is just like someone being a jerk, um, being an idiot, uh, being an asshole versus you know real acts of of, of 
sexual violence, racial violence, and and you've you've uncovered you've been the first to uncover a number of of, of really horrific hoaxes hoaxes on campus. Is part of that driven by by social media? that allows someone, you know, the upside of social media is it allows an investigative reporter like you to get your story out there, even though you don't work for the Washington Post. It, it builds uh, Reason's platform as, as a media outlet. But the downside is it might encourage people that, that, that want to tell a lie. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of, I think, social science theories about these kinds of things, but it, it never seems like there's enough there to make assertions. I mean, like, there are some people who think uh, the amount of media coverage we give actually to, like, mass shooters and things like that is, uh, it's a contagion, and it, and, and, and uh, uh, other deranged people see the attention they get and sort of fetishize that, and, and, it, and it's like copycat things. Yeah. yeah. There's some, there's compelling social science research to show that, and then it's like, so should the media sort of willingly or vol- voluntarily censor themselves to keep, you know, if you keep the name of the person out of uh, who, who commits this horrific violence out of the media, would that uh, give less incentive to derange people to carry out similar? Att- I, I think that I, the research I've seen is sort of compelling on that point, actually, and this is tangential to what you had brought up. But uh, but that would involve but then I would never I would never say the government should or could enforce any sort of you know, you're not allowed to share their names. So they would have to be a voluntary. Th- These are decisions that careful reporters should really weigh. Um, there's, there, may, there might be such a thing as information overload or right. just right. or just bringing up um, even actually just, just the other day, I saw sort of a news report about uh, I can't I think it was in California, but it was some it was a news reporter who, who died of some kind of drug overdose in like some compromising situation. And he was married and it's embarrassing to his family. And and the details in the story are like, oh, like they go into all the details of and it's and again, it's very embarrassing for his family. And I don't know, like, I'm not sure what the legitimate news purpose is of sort of publicly humiliating this this person who died their family. Uh, you know, it's, it's gratuitous. It's engaging almost in sort of gossip in a way that I often wish the media would just voluntarily be more responsible. So, um, you know, I, I, I read your stuff uh, fairly regularly, and, and it's a little bit different to me because it seems to be almost that lost art of, of actual investigative journalism. You, 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 you let everybody know generally speaking, that you're a libertarian and that has certain biases that you bring to the table, um, but, but you actually try to report facts. And, and I don't see that much anymore. And part of that is economics. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's very difficult in the transition from the old top-down media platforms, you know, the Washington Post, New York Times, uh, the, the, the news of record to this democratized world. But is do you feel like your style of, of reporting facts is still a, a viable platform? I mean, I think it is. I think the mainstream, uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, so on, I still think they do a lot of good reporting. It's often disguised by terrible opinion that is actually in different sections of the paper that bring the whole enterprise down. Um, but the reporters do, you know, let their biases kind of, uh, be apparent sometimes. And unfortunately, the Trump years have made objective journalism much more difficult because, and part of this is Trump's fault, because he has positioned himself so much uh, more than they deserve, I think, as, yeah. as, as 
you know, being opposed to the media. And I, I think he's over the top with his criticism of the media. But then there's a there's a reaction on the media's part. You know, you know and this is like a what who came first, the chicken or the egg problem. Right. But so it's two teams. It's Team Trump and it's Team Media. So all stories need to slot into is this a is this a story that helps Trump or is this a story that helps the media? And the media itself, you know, the the who are supposed to be the referees sort of are on one side of this conflict very clearly. So many of these stories so I don't fit into either team. Uh there are things about the media I like and agree with, there are things about Trump I like and agree with and and hate on both sides. So sometimes when stories come along, I don't really have, or I don't have an agenda at least that fits into either of these sides. I don't care if this story makes Trump look good or it makes him look bad. I, I don't, like, I care whatever it is, right? I, so some of these, it's just I have no axe to grind. I, I don't need to put into one category or the other, whatever it turns out to be. You know, if it turned out that these kids on the Lincoln Memorial were deranged white supremacists who loved Trump and were shouting at Native Americans— Okay, it doesn't matter to me. I, that's that, what I would write then, about. Then that's the story. It, but it turned out as I was watching the extended video that no, it was the opposite of that. Uh, they really weren't doing anything wrong, and it the everyone who had in the media who had who had rushed to judgment on this should should be ashamed and humiliated for the mistakes they made. So that's and that was true. That was not. I didn't have an agenda in saying that. If the, it was the other way, it would have been fine with me. So yeah. that's that's the only. That's the advantage I think I bring to these. Situations. And that, that's sort of, uh, and, and I, I think the Trump attacking the free press narrative is way overblown um, because I'm old enough to remember Barack Obama uh, doing a lot of the same things. He did it with a little more panache, and Trump, Trump does it with his, his brash sort of obnoxious way that he does things. Um, but the Washington Post did, in fact, change their masthead to democracy right. dies in darkness, which, which sounds like a... A banner for the resistance as opposed to we're going to get to the facts and report them well because it's an enterprise i mean so many of these businesses like consider the aclu uh which has a a long record of kind of defending principles i really care about uh, due process free speech civil liberties you know is increasingly again an anti-trump organization in a time where you really got to be on one side or the other which has led them to some uh policy positions that i think are a little bit um far afield of what would be a true defense of civil liberties they've been initially they were they were pretty bad on on title nine which is this uh sort of uh it sets what the sexual misconduct policies of campuses are going to be and has a lot of due process and free speech implications uh the trump administration has been trying to reform this and i, I talk about it in the book and i i agree with what they're doing very much i i think uh the the rules that came about under the obama administration were very bad for for free speech and due process no, nothing obama did personally it was like an undersecretary undersecretary sure uh, so, but Trump is making reforms. I think are very important that a different ACLU, an ACLU that wasn't so caught up in being anti-Trump, would actually see value in. And to, their, so, their initial statement on it was, you know, it was apocalyptic. Oh my God, I can't believe what Trump's doing. And they did, uh, they they reined that a little bit in after they got some criticism from uh, civil liberties-minded leftists who who are still more about principle. Yeah. But that's an example of the kind of thing we see too much of now. Yeah, I actually did a, a long conversation with the president of the ACLU, and 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 we agreed on on at least most of the things we talked about. But it strikes me that it's that generational thing that we were talking about earlier. The the new left, the intersectional left, um, is is very much at odds with with the origins, the founders, and the founding principles of the ACLU, which were 
which are radically free speech. It was just a couple years ago that the ACLU actually defended the neo-Nazis and white supremacists that wanted to protest in Charlottesville around right. the, the monument. And that's been that's been a disaster for them in terms of their fundraising base, in terms of their membership. I don't know exactly how they're structured, but I assume they have um, donating members and it's a, it's probably approximating a grassroots organization. And they they flipped as far as I can tell. They're 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 waffling on free speech and, and I don't know what the ACLU is. If right. it's not defending free speech. And and part of this isn't new. Uh, I, I learned, and this is reported in the book, uh, I, I spoke with uh, Nadine Strassen, who was a, a, a past president of the ACLU, and she told me that, you know, when they made a stand in defense of uh, uh, previously, uh, I, I think it was when they defended um, uh, a neo-Nazi group. I can't recall exactly who. It was a very controversial person's yeah. rights they were defending, and they lost a huge chunk of members, and this was a couple decades ago. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't, you know, it didn't change their resolve. And you are seeing a little bit uh, now of them backpedaling on some things. And I, I talk about in the book uh, at William and this was my this was a very uh, uh, elucidating kind of protest uh, at William and Mary uh, College. They invited uh, the college invited a, an ACLU speaker shortly after the Charlottesville thing. And um, the students, it was the Black Lives Matter affiliated student activist group, and they protested the ACLU speaker, and they shouted at her, you know, ACLU, you protect Hitler too. Uh, they they shouted, liberalism is white supremacy. Yeah, that is their belief. Liberalism is white supremacy. The moderate, the center, the liberals, those people are our enemies. You know, we you 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 are you are allowing real harm against our communities, um, which, which and the college didn't handle that well at all. The ACLU woman was kind of really flabbergasted and didn't yeah. know how to respond. Uh, but that kind of response is, uh, is more common among um, the activist kind of subset of students, which isn't all students, by the way. I don't even know that their ranks have really increased, but the number of students who are progressive activists on college campuses uh, and are anti-speech inclined, uh, they really saw some real successes in the in the last few years, in like the twenty sort of twenty twelve to twenty seventeen period. Yeah, I mean, it it it, it kind of snuck up on me. I'll be honest, because I um, I it's been more than a few years since I've uh, been in college, and it was a very different time then. And and the first time that I realized that we weren't having the same conversation and, and there were language barriers, but these, these fundamental um, concepts, we weren't talking about the same stuff. I was debating the head of the NAACP, back then it was Ben Jealous in 2010 on CNN. And, and it was Don Lemon sort of moderating this mm-hmm. debate. And I used the word, uh, the words colorblind society, which, which I thought, um, I thought we all agreed that the goal, certainly in public policy, was that we were going to have color-neutral policies. We weren't going to judge people based on the on the color of their skin. And Don Lemon cut me off and said, "Hold on, Matt. Hold on, Matt. I, I'm not sure that's right." Um, and he goes he goes on talking about that stuff. And I, I responded, "So okay, well, why don't we judge people based on the content of their character?" And I suspect I don't know this, but I suspect that the whole um, context of, of Martin Luther King's uh, mantra had had been lost even to to Don Lemon's generation. But when I read your book, it made perfect sense. And and so I thought I thought what we might do is actually you, you mentioned that you're a libertarian and that sometimes that feels like Switzerland. You can sort of 
sit out the war and watch it from the outside and try to be objective about it. But it, there's a great explanation of intersectionality in this book, and it's it, it's hard to get your head, head around. Um, tell us what intersectionality is and how, how it governs modern leftist philosophy. Absolutely. So I describe intersectionality as the operating system for the modern left. Uh, it is it is amazing how influential it's become when you see leftists talk about it uh, in their writings on social media with each other. They you know they frequent frequently reference intersectionality activism and and progressivism that is not intersectional is no good to them. So intersectionality is a term that dates to uh, the late uh, 1980s. It was coined by a sociologist named Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, who needed a word to describe, and she was a black woman, and she needed a, a way to describe uh, the unique uh, uh, combination of oppression that black women had suffered. They, they had they had been oppressed not just because they were black and not just because they were women, but because they were black women. And, and this was, so they had faced oppressions that were unique that that not all black people would have faced because black men wouldn't have faced them and 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 not all women would have fa uh, faced uh, for the same reason um, so and she thought uh, and she thought act so activism that was only uh, engaged in getting rid of racism uh, was not good enough for her and activism that was only engaged in in uh, countering sexism would not be good enough for her you needed activism that was that was both consciously engaged in being anti-racist and anti-sexist so no problem so far, because I agree that racism and sexism are bad and that you should probably pay attention to both of them. Uh, the issue became that so more and more kind of sociologists, philosophical thinkers, influential on the left, uh, kept adding more categories to the lists of sort of unique sources of oppression that stack, that give you, you know, most oppressed of all status. Uh, class is in some ways actually predating all of these because the, the old new left was, was predominantly obsessed with class. Marx coming from Marx and, and, and that tradition that class and anti-capitalism is the root struggle. And actually, sometimes there's clashes between these people and the new intersectional people who want to talk about race and gender. And they say, no, these are, these are distractions. Class is the true struggle. This is sort of a Bernie versus others kind of uh, uh, political thing that's shaping out in our reality. But anyway, so once you add so many things, the issues, uh, you know, trans status, uh, sexual orientation, but I've seen sizeism, I've seen ableism, I've seen ageism, uh, yeah. size, mental health status. Size, sizeism was a new one for me. I hadn't <laughs> heard that one yet. So, and again, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of a progressive person in, in, in some sense in that I, I'm also against these things. But the problem becomes if you're trying to get people on board for one cause, but you need them to be on board for all these things, you're going to have a coalition of like 10 people that all went to Oberlin, right? You're yeah. not going to be able to change uh, the world if you can't get, and actually criminal justice reform has been a good example of this because, you know, I agree with so many goals of Black Lives Matter. I even agree that, that black people face uh, problems because of policing that white people don't. I, I agree with so much of what they want to do in their framing of the issue. Yeah. But when it becomes also about, no, we also must overthrow capitalism. We also must overthrow the patriarchy. Patriarchy. Uh, we also, uh, you know, hate the state of Israel. We all the like you're adding all these things, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't. But you're no longer going to be able to put together a coalition of anyone. Um, so no one is good enough is the is the is the motto of the left. And it's because of intersectionality. But I I'm not even close to good because I'm a white dude with right. with this radical uh, set of sexual preferences. I've been married and monogamous forever. 
So you and I realize that that's just too weird to be. So you in should the be framework. educating yourself, but you can't educate yourself because it's not their job to educate you. Right. So you can't. So unless you already know all the ins and outs of this ideology, uh, you're you're screwed because you can't. You're not supposed to ask them to to help you understand it. Yeah, and you know one of the one of the grandiose visions for this show is I was I was hoping to find. Um, brave and honest progressives that would come and have a conversation about like I would love to have a conversation about intersectionality with uh, with people that that are very much focused on that kind of stuff because I realize that there, there's language barriers and and, and important um, narrative barriers that keep us from hearing each other sometimes but reading your book I'm not allowed to ask <laughs> right because that's that in and of itself is is offensive behavior and it and it ignores that there are actually huge areas of disagreement even on the left I mean uh, so transgender issues there are there are huge disagreements among segments of the left about gender identity and how innate it is and you know are we all just there's no difference between men and women and this is all you know that actually some of that kind of appeals to my libertarian individualism that we're all we're all just individuals and you can have whatever characteristics you want to have yeah. and it's all up to you and it has nothing to do with anything you know I'm not a conservative in that way but even but some on the left say no it's very innate but and it, your brain is wired a certain way and you can switch it and but it's very it's like doesn't you know comport with what else they think so these are conversations that would actually be very interesting to have that the the most kind of more intersectional anti-speech leftists not only refuse to have but assert that anyone trying to have these conversations is engaged in harassment and violence against trans people uh journalists even journalists on the left uh and i talk about some of them in my chapter on this subject uh journalists who are very much on the left who who, who write about these uh, uh trans issues from a from a sort of science you know using again not using like ben shapiro talking points or anything using right. you know what the what the progressive established science on it is they get into unbelievable battle. The things they are accused of, of kind of the most um, um, out there uh, progressive activists is, uh, is fascinating. The book, once again, Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump by Robbie Suave. We are talking to him. And, and I, love, I love the title. It's like, a, I, I take it it's a play on words because um, so much of this philosophy is defined by, by the panic, specifically of Trump. And I don't know if you meant it that way, but but there's there's a violent aspect to this. There's there's the right to attack someone that you disagree with. That seems a fundamental departure from anything that I understood as as liberalism. Um, this intersectionality that we were just talking about, um, you 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 introduce that idea pretty early in the book in the context of of the women's march and how from day one it was problematic. Um, Massive march by any by any measure, a very successful turnout of people, um, and and I wrote at the time this is this is real. Like a lot of a lot of Republicans were saying, this is a George Soros conspiracy. These people are all paid and all that BS. And I'm like, no, this is a real thing. Um, but how does how does it hold together? Because they appear to only agree on one thing: they hate Trump. They don't seem to have a core set of values that holds them together. What, what I didn't fully appreciate was that this intersectionality was, was tearing the Women's March and the leadership of it apart from, from day one. And, and you go into that, and I think, I think it's the first full chapter yeah. of the book. Yeah, I mean, you know, by any objective measure, the, the, 
the original Women's March the, in D.C. happening right uh, right after, I think, the, the, it was yeah, the, day, the day before, after, the day yeah. after the inauguration w- was a tremendous success. I mean, there were so many people there. And, uh, you know, and I, I sort of agree with what they were, you know, that Trump really did have a, a unique sort of history of saying kind of misogynist or sexist things, had been accused of a lot of things. And they were, you know, they were sending a message that this is not okay. And this is not how anyone, least of all the president of the United States, should uh, should treat women. I, that makes total sense to me. Um, what shocked me from the get when I started interviewing the, the, the hard, and this, so this attracted regular people too, you know, they're just, just people who felt like Trump should be called out on this, right. um, wanted to be a part of this. And this is the coalition. I think coalitions are good, uh, uh, especially around a single cause. You can get, you know, a lot of people from various walks of life to, to agree on something and to advance that cause. Um, but it, it surprised me from the get-go that, uh, and then after I learned more about intersectionality, I was no longer surprised, but so many of the progressive activists who said, oh, we hated this, we wanted nothing to do with this, because it did not center the most marginalized at the center of it. It did not, it was not led by uh, uh, black trans women. Uh, you know, if you were going to have a real intersectional march, the, the, the people who have the most to fear, the most to lose from Trump should have the say and should be in power. And then in, in sort of the next couple of years, we've seen uh, so much of the leadership of the Women's March. Uh, in, in a way, it's almost a failure of them to live up to intersectionality, in my opinion, because I, again, I don't think the concept is, is always totally without merit, but it se- for some reason, it seemed like, you know, they want, ev- they want everyone on board with every progressive cause except like anti-Semitism, because the leaders of the Women's March have this kind of storied history of involvement with Louis Farrakhan, who is very obviously anti-Semitic. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not, by the way, someone who thinks like all criticism of Israel is, is inherently anti-Semitism, uh, which some on the right sort of conflate the two. Uh, but he, Farrakhan does have a history of making these pretty broadly offensive to Jewish people uh, comments that they couldn't, for some reason, uh, write off, even though they would have written anyone else out of their coalition for being imperfect on an issue of, like, hatred. Uh, so in a ways, it's a failure of intersectionality. Right. Uh, it shows uh, maybe the hypocrisy. I think it showed the hypocrisy of it, that where you have to be perfect from a leftist standpoint on everything, except that we don't really care about that. Yeah. Uh, which yeah, anti-Semitism ranks super low on, on yeah. the chart. And I, and I found there's a lot of anti-Semitism on both the extremes. The, the college sort of left, it often over, uh, overlaps with, again, with a criticism of Israel, which I, I don't think is, is necessarily illegitimate, but then also a criticism of the characterization, the, the caricature of Jewish people as having something to do with the world financial system uh, uh, so the, the criticism of capitalism gets wrapped up in sort of anti-Semitic uh, stereotype, but there's that on the right too. And I do spend, uh, the final chapter of this book is about the rise of the alt-right over the last couple of years and, uh, ways in which they are a reaction to and similar to some of the leftist extremes. And they actually, in many ways, share the critique of capitalism because they think it's, they think it's globalism. They, they, you know, I interviewed Richard Spencer for this book and he wants, white people to be taken care of by the by the society if not the government um and so he shares many of those far left criticisms including that uh it is not illegitimate to use violence to not necessarily illegitimate to use violence to suppress a, a harmful view he's ironically sort of agrees with the people who who want to and did punch him in the face to stop him from speaking uh i mean he told me that in the book that he kind of thinks they have a point because is it 
you know, w would we not use force to bring about the society we want? Uh, so it's interesting. Well, it's, Parallels. It, it's a, and, I, and I've argued this for a long time, but I, I feel like the, the far right and the far left have a lot more in common than they would ever want to acknowledge. And you, you were talking earlier about, about this dynamic where the, the, the far left has moved away from class struggle, which, which in a weird way is sort of uh, non-discriminant. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, it's the bourgeoisie versus, versus the, the rich guys. Um, and I don't buy that framework, but it's, it's in a lot of ways less offensive than, than dividing people and categorizing and judging people based on the color of their skin, where they're from, sexual preferences, men, women, all that stuff. And, and in a weird way, it starts to sound like kind of a right-wing fascist blood and soil kind of argument. It's important where I came from, um, and it's important what the color of my skin is. And, you know, is it white nationalism? Is it black nationalism? Is it, what is it? It sounds almost like the same thing, except that it's two tribes that are, that are going to try to take each other out. And that you that your value derives from your membership in an identity based group. Yeah, I mean that is the belief of the alt right, and to some degree, in some cases, I think that is a or or a, it's close to that belief in some segments of the intersectional left, or that your your value is determined by your membership in one of these preordained categories. This you know these notions offend me as a libertarian. You have value because you are an individual. And all individuals have value because you're because you're a person. Uh, that's where your rights come from. It's you don't have uh, and the but the alt right believes that you your worth and matter is determined by a category outside your control, your your race. And you know I think I think groups that we voluntarily join can be part of our i can can be part of our identity and can be you know worth. You know, I'm, I'm proud to be a libertarian. I'm proud to be a journalist. I'm proud to be a husband. But those are things you choose. Uh, and, and the idea that your worth is determined by what you look like or where you were born, again, this is, this is anathema to my, to my libertarian beliefs. And I, I, see, I see that on both sides. So the, um, you know, the idea that, that the alt-right would, would want some of the, the sort of government coddling and support and redistribution that, that the left has, has been known for is, is probably shocking to people listening to this or like, and, and, you know, right. it's like, and of course the media blurs the word conservative and I'm not even sure what conservative means anymore in, in the era of Trump, <laughs> right. but they, they, they conflate these two terms, alt-right and conservative are the same thing. But if you listen to Richard Spencer, it has, it has nothing to do with traditional constitutional conservative. We're going we're gonna to limit the size and scope of government. Yes, we're going to argue about foreign policy. Um, but generally speaking, we, we think the government should stay out of, of private enterprise. Um, that's what conservatives have traditionally said. But, but now, you're seeing, now you're seeing the alt-right, which is, is in, in my estimation, it's not, it's not right at all the way that we were taught that there's this left-right thing. It's a replacement for the right. Yeah. That's how I've come to view it. They, they altern it's an alternative to the right as we knew it previously. And I don't want to overstate, you know, their influence. Um, their numbers are not, well, I, mean, I don't think we have good data on what their numbers are, but their numbers aren't, uh, aren't, uh, aren't huge. Yeah. Uh, and, but neither are the, is it huge, the ranks of sort of the far left progressives either. Um, the issue is they, 
in a couple spaces just have a lot of they have a lot of power on college campuses. Yeah. Both groups have a lot of power on social media because the loudest, most vile, most harassing person, uh, you know, does have power to sort of rearrange the rules on social media as 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 the companies try to deal with these entities. Um, and I think uh, I, and uh, uh, the and the left at least wants to I think change uh, what the workplace is like, yeah. what corporate America is like. I think they want to make it more, again, you, you, uh, sensitive to feelings and to, and to safety and, uh, and in a, in a, in a sort of, uh, sort of the way they have used harassment law on campuses to make it harder to express, um, uh, controversial ideas. I can very easily see them doing the same thing. Uh, and they're already starting to do that in places like Silicon Valley, where disproportionately younger, you know, workers, younger college educated workers are, uh, sort of, you know, concentrated. Um, so it's, uh, so, you know, I never, I I'm not trying to scare people, right? I, I'm, uh, well, I, you did, I, you did scare me. <laughs> well, uh, well, uh, I, I'm, right. I'm, I'm triggered. Yeah, I'll you're be triggered. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't want to overstate, uh, anyone's influence, but I am, I am concerned about these, uh, these polarizing sort of these trends, these rising, I mean, it's ba even as sort of just someone who wants libertarianism to be advanced and succeed, uh, the, the number of, of people uh, on both sides who are who have anti-market bias and sort of anti-individualist bias yeah. uh, is is really uh, concerning. The Trump years have certainly uh, been bad, I think, for that uh, because it, and and Trump is even though I sort of kind of like maybe his foreign policy impulses probably is the thing I like best about Trump. Hope, hopefully, F fingers crossed. S sort yeah. of, but you know he's kind of stumbling his way to maybe an ideology there but in many ways he's just confoundingly unideological yeah and so it's hard to say like well i'm a libertarian and he's not that's not exactly correct either but he's definitely not a libertarian it's just confused and there's no it's hard to even sort of market libertarianism to people i think so i have a bourbon in you and here comes my my critique of your book i'm first Excellent. of all i'm happy to hear and i'm not sure i saw this in the book and i've heard you made this argument before that that these, um, you know, the, these these loud fringes on campus um, don't necessarily represent. You know, when we talk about millennials and we talk about zillennials, I, I I love the new word. Is that your word, by the way? Uh, I I don't know that I coined it because I think I saw it somewhere else, but I can't remember where I stole it from. It's easier to, than saying Generation Z and right. So I'm I use the word to mean Gen Z and millennials together. Okay. Yeah. Well, that. That saves lots of words, yes. so I, I appreciate that. But you know, we keep hearing about about snowflake culture and 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 trigger warnings and intersectionality and all these things that that apparently govern govern young people on campuses. But it's not necessarily um, what everybody thinks. And the 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 one thing that I would want to see more of, and I, I would make this a suggestion since this book isn't finished yet is let, let's talk a little bit about the, the libertarian alternative because you have, you, you know, you have uh, the alt-right and, and certainly the, the Republican Party under Trump is becoming more nationalist. It's becoming less worried about executive power. You know, we're having a debate this week on Capitol Hill about whether or not you know, President Trump should, should declare an emergency to build the wall. And former constitutional conservatives don't seem so upset about it anymore. And this, this is a weird thing to me. So it's you, just a mosh, right? <laughs> yeah. So you, have, um, so you have this sort of tribal identity politics. You have these silos on, on, on the right and the left. And, and I have this theory that in the middle, 
And I hate that left-right thing, by the way, because I don't think that's really a correct configuration. But there's all these people outside of this system that are like, why are we fighting so much? I just want to get a job and go to work, and I want to raise my family, and I want to go to church where I choose to go to church, and I want to be able to express my opinions with my friends. You know, sort of to me, that's the American philosophy, and and it's inherently libertarian. What? Where's our spot? And and how do we um, take advantage of this 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 tribalism that that is that is very anti-libertarian? Absolutely. I mean, I think we have so much to offer in terms of consistency. You know, we are the people who were against executive overreach when Barack Obama was doing it, when George Bush was doing it before him, and probably when Bill Clinton was doing it before him. I was I was in grade school then. Yeah, but, thanks, uh, thanks for that, pointing that out. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we have this, this was actually the first thing I said when Trump uh, became elected. I wrote some Facebook post being like, you know, the reason we wanted executive power to be limited when Obama was doing all sorts of things that you liberals liked was the day has come for that from your perspective. Your worst nightmare is here. And we, the, we were the ones saying, in case your worst nightmare comes, we want the president to not have all that much power. Um, so I think that, you know, I think that's a message that resonates. And, and, and when I share that sentiment, it seems to get a good pickup. You know, I, I, I want to be in conversation with uh, not really not the left, but but liberals, thoughtful, moderate liberals um, uh, who want to do all the things you talk, you know, who want to have a dialogue, who care about free speech, uh, who care about due process, um, you know, I, 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 my, this book is sort of a plea to them to let's, you know, get together. Let's, you know, we don't have to agree on anything. I don't demand, uh, agree on everything. I don't demand purity even from sort of like my libertarian party candidates. I just sort of want someone to present a, a third alternative. It can be squishy. It can be imperfect, but something vaguely libertarian and independent that is consistent in saying we need to constrain government, um, regardless of who is in power. Um, and there aren't a lot of, there may not be a lot of us, but there might be more of us than you think. There certainly aren't a lot of us in power. There aren't a lot of us in the Republican or the Democratic Party who view this. Um, but uh, but it is it is a hard, me- it's a hard message to get out in an, in an era where, where everything is so filtered through tr- pro-Trump or anti-Trump. That is a hard framing device to get outside of and and that is the challenge i think is is talking about things without talking about things necessarily in relation to trump so on my podcast we insist on quoting ludwig von mises with the proper religious reverence and and he was he was a critic of of nationalism he was a critic of fascism he was a critic of socialism and he's got in in his book liberalism the the word that we lost. Apparently, we've lost it on the left and the right. No, no one even knows what the word liberalism means anymore. He talks about how it is that that socialism divided people by class horizontally, and that fascism divided uh, vertically, um, you know, based on um, blood and soil. Right. And he he doesn't use those words, but but he's talking about that. And and I wonder if we can't sort of exploit this 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 dividing of of the of the pie and intersectionality is sort of a radical version and take it a little bit further because if you really really want to hold that philosophy true it turns out we're actually all different like each of us has our own sort of preferences and goals where we came from where we're going what we want to achieve in our lives 
And if it's true that we're all different, um, we probably are going to have to be a little bit tolerant um, because we, we don't belong to a tribe in that sense. We're, we're all different and, and we're all trying to do stuff, but we got to do it together. Um, so I, I, think there's, I think there's an appeal there um, but you're right in, in the era of you're either wearing a MAGA hat or you're a socialist, democratic socialist of America, you're with AOC or you're with, um, Trump. Like, how do you, how do you have a calm, rational conversation? You just have to expand your horizons because even, even Trump, I mean, Trump has made some steps forward positively on criminal justice reform that I never would have predicted because he ran on a very pro-police uh, platform. He picked Jeff Sessions to be his attorney general. Right, right. And yet because he's sort of friends with Kim Kardashian, he ends up doing some good things on criminal justice reform. Just just go with it. Yeah. That, right. Yeah, just go with it. That's great. You know, I, I want these kinds of weird coalitions to be possible. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, that right. That takes recognizing that people are all different. People are all individuals. Uh, if, if everyone has to be perfect or has to agree with you on everything for you to work with them, it's just going to fail. I mean, I think about the causes that, that maybe within my, like gay marriage is a great example of a cause sort of within my lifetime that massively sort of, there was massive social change on. Yeah. But the strategy there was to get like conservatives and moderates on board with it by by taking the, the most sort of, sort of uncontroversial part, just... They, they want to just have families. They're no different from you. This is not, you know, this isn't going to hurt your religion. You're not going to be forced to do anything here. And that was very popular. And you were able, able to bring on a lot of people who would have disagreed with, you know, with other things that, that activists on behalf of this cause wanted. But, you know, then when, now when it starts getting into, well, you know, we're going to force you as well to, to reorient your small business, to, to, to be forced to serve people you don't agree with. That's device. Nobody wants that. That's divisive. Um, and then it, and then it will back, you know, if you take the maximal position, then it starts to backfire. Yeah. The, um, the, the, the theory that I have is that we're in the midst of a, um, important paradigm shift. Like everything used to be top down, um, particularly our politics. You got, you got two flavors. You could, you could go with blue flavor or red flavor. And for young people that, that just seems really bizarre that you would only get two choices. They they, they sort of have a Absolutely. infinite number of choices of music every day, and they curate their friends and their family and and information and news sources and and even even knowledge in a, in a wide open, radically libertarian world we we call technology and, and the internet and social media. Um, I think we're in the middle of something, and you you see um, you saw the Ron Paul movement, you saw the Tea Party movement, uh, the Bernie Sanders movement, and even even Trumpism. These are all sort of outsiders in traditional political space that never would have had a voice within the two party structure, and now they're now they're kind of taking it over. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is the latest version of that, but this isn't the end. This is the middle. Right. And and as we sort of break up the old monopoly, um, there is at least an opportunity to get at something that that's tolerant of all sorts of individuals, all shapes, sizes, colors. Well, backgrounds. there's a disconnect between the like sort of personal and cultural implications of that, and the poli- the expressed political preferences based on that. Because you're right, young people are are culturally and socially libertarian that they want choices. Yeah. They would they would they would not want to live without 
the additional choices, the customization over your own life um, that that has become possible uh, almost uh, only in recent years. Um, and there, but there's a disconnect between that and some of the sort of socialist-inspired politicians whom they purport to like, but then uh, would want a society where there where there are fewer choices. And and they're explicit about that in some cases. Like Bernie Sanders has said things like, "Do you really need this many choices?" Um, when he's talking about things like I think he was actually talking was, about deodorant. Yeah, right? deodorant. Yeah. Uh, which yes, we want choice, and and so that young people do want choices. And uh, you know, when I talk to, uh, I totally, I, I totally want the government to decide which uh, right. deodorant I use. Yeah, right. There would be no. And and when I talk to democratic socialists, because I have a chapter on them in the book, uh, you know, they, um, it's they definitely they don't want fewer choices. They think that uh, somehow overthrowing capitalism and having a having a socially democratic country would produce more choices and i that's wrong i think yeah. but it's not they don't actually want the like top down soviet for the most part so maybe some of the extremists do but but the ones who are trying to gain converts they even aoc talks about uh, she says you know participation in your own economic dignity mm-hmm. that's what socialism is well who could be against that yeah, that I'm, sounds great i'm in i'm in right yeah. so there's a little bit no wonder socialism seems popular if it's described in these incredibly generous terms and i will fault the right a little bit for uh, for you know in the obama years pretending that any little that every last sort of infringement that Democrats were going to bring about on economic liberty was akin to socialism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was it's almost like crying wolf yeah. a little bit. And now that that's just not that's not effective as a scare tactic. The word is people. the word is abused to yeah. the point where um, yeah. it doesn't really mean anything like I would have thought. Right. Ron Paul was actually careful about it. I remember yeah. Ron Paul once saying, "No, Barack Obama is not a socialist. He, you know, he was he was more he would use more exact language to describe what his policies were, um, and and the right, you know, really really screwed up on that in my view." But it, it, another source of optimism, you know, I went back and and rewatched uh, AOC's initial video, the one that went viral, the one that really created her her competitiveness in that campaign. And you have to, I forget how long, let's say it's five minutes long. I think that's about right. You have to get 85, 90% through it, maybe even 95% through it before you really disagree with anything she has mm-hmm. to say. Because she's talking about a, a Washington, D.C. and, and, and the, the big bankers and, and all of these guys that collude against us and the incumbent that never comes home. He's a creature of Washington now. He's not a... He's not part of our community anymore. And it's not until it almost an afterthought. And that's why we need Medicare for all. And that's why we right. need this and that. And, and there's a lot of similarities there um, with the kind of things that Ron Paul would complain about. You know, the rage against the machine, you know, Washington's corrupt. Um, the, the new left has, has embraced some of that, and, and they're not wrong about and that. One of the main DSA uh, sort of issues really is, is ICE, is reforming or getting – I mean, they, they're abolishing ICE, um, right. which, I, you know, sign me up. <laughs> I don't want like a, a secret police roaming the country rounding up immigrants. Um, so I don't it, – it's almost frustrating to me that they've been able to um, sort of co-opt that and market that as a sort of socialist position when it's really a libertarian position. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, I would – but I would work with them. I would form a coalition uh, on that issue with them if they will if they will be willing to work with people who also don't hate capitalism. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I don't – now, again, there, the, the economic sort of DSA – 
say Bernie people are the least down with intersectionality. So they might actually be receptive to working with uh, libertarians in a way that uh, that a different contingent of the left uh, it, it might not be. Of course, Bernie is, is secretly um, worried about not just illegal immigration, but immigration, well, period. Right. It's, right. A, it's a Koch brothers scheme. That's fu- Yeah, that, right. That is, uh, yeah, that's an interesting sort, yeah. of, uh, sort of contradiction. So, so you have, you have all, that, all those weird sort of cross currents and all of this. But in all of this, the, the, the most optimistic thing I see in Trump on criminal justice reform, uh, Trump with a, with a more realistic, thoughtful, less interventionist foreign policy, his at least stated desire to get out of Afghanistan and Syria. Right. Um, this is all, it's like this new politics where you're seeing you know, so-called Tea Party Republicans, but they're really sort of libertarianish Republicans, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, maybe a couple more, um, they're willing to work with with hardcore Democrats yeah. on criminal justice, on surveillance, on war powers, and, and the list goes on and on, on criminal justice and mass incarceration. And what what's interesting about the fact that, you know, Bernie Sanders could give that speech complaining about all those things. Uh, Mike Lee could do the same thing, but, the, you know, the difference is, that those are all stories about government abuse of power. Yes. Where does mass incarceration come from? It's right. it's because there's too much government. Uh, foreign policy in particular is one area where I am more akin to agree with the far left versus the moderate left, uh, the sort of cable news left, which has been just sort of hysterically sort of anti-Russia. And, Apparently they and want it, us to invade Russia. Right. Yeah. I, I watched an interview, I believe it was Rachel Maddow interviewing uh, Elizabeth Warren, trying to get her to be alarmed that we that Trump wants to get us out of Syria. And, and Warren, to her credit, sort of was like, well, no, I agree with getting out of Syria. Oh, good for uh, her. So, uh, so yeah. that, that is one sort of category of issues where I actually respect. Uh, you know, I, I have some respect for Bernie, despite disagreeing with a lot of what he thinks, uh, because I think it's genuine. And I think it's, it, it's a true—he's—it uh, he's, he's, it is his ideology. It's not conveniently adopted to satisfy anyone, and I don't think he changes his positions based on what would be maybe best for his campaign or best for him politically— um, and I and I and I think his his dis, he doesn't talk much about foreign policy, but I, I gather that I, I he would have a more restrained foreign policy. Fortunately, he's very focused on the issues where I where I least agree with him. Yeah. Um, well, we we promised we'd be mostly honest, so let me say something that's probably career ending for me. <laughs> uh, 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 last uh, November or something, you guys were there. Um, Rand Paul organized a subcommittee hearing on war powers and Bernie came in and gave this amazing um, monologue and I was I was swooning a little bit I'm like I'm sort of I'm feeling sort of Bernie broish at this moment so I don't know he could still get my vote yeah I mean that was the that was the hard part too far too far (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh yeah the the audience is turning on yeah Yeah, I mean, it's over. Well, yeah, especially we'll if you're out. if you're going to have, a, you know, it matters if you have a Republican Congress. In yeah. my, if we have a Republican Congress that is going to kill all the domestic spending or whatever domestic policies that a President Bernie was going to put forth, uh, but that would be fine then because is, President Bernie wouldn't be invading a bunch of people, but his his crazy sort of domestic policies that he wants would be thwarted by a Republican Congress. That might actually be a happy uh, because the the president is is least constrained on matters relating to foreign policy. Yeah. On those issues, Congress has said, do whatever you want, we don't care. 
So if I knew I was going to have a Republican Congress to prevent the domestic stuff, uh, I might actually prefer like a like a really left of center president because uh, the the area where where the president can most do whatever he wants uh, is foreign policy. So uh, I wonder, like, and I watch the, the the left's reaction, and it's it's so tribal now that when Trump proposes restraint, um, getting out of Syria, getting out of Afghanistan, um, the left seemingly for very partisan reasons um, sounds like Bill Crystal. They, yeah. they sound like neocons now. So I, I just worry that who, whoever's in charge is, is going to continue um, doing all the dumb things we've been doing since 9-11. Clearly, there is an allure or there's an encouragement to, to have a unconstrained foreign policy regardless of who is in the White House. I mean, Barack Obama was a huge disappointment here, yeah. uh, even though he campaigned very, very explicitly on being an anti-interventionist and then really sort of betrayed that. Uh, you know, he, I was an undergrad uh, during the 2008 election and the people who got the, you know, the most support and love for, for, from students were Obama and Ron Paul mm -hmm. because, because they were the most against the Iraq war. Yeah. I remember talking, and I have this anecdote in the book, talking to a, a friend of, I think it was a, a colleague of mine at the student newspaper who was an ardent hard left progressive, uh, who loved, uh, Barack Obama, but her number two choice was Ron Paul because of foreign policy. Um, so th there were hopes and expectations for Barack Obama to be better on this stuff. And, uh, and you know, maybe he wasn't the worst ever, but uh, Libya, I mean, Libya was terrible. I think that was sort of Hillary Clinton's doing. Yeah. But, uh, but even though he was sort of a, con he was a constitutional figure who knew what these limits should be, uh, didn't live up to them. And that is, that's very discouraging. I don't, I, and, you know, even someone like Bernie hasn't talked about these issues as much as Obama did, and then Obama betrayed them. So I don't know. I don't know who would resist whatever this power this town has to turn you into a rabid interventionist. Yeah. Well, um, I, and I, ha I feel obligated now that I've, I've said this jokingly. I'm, I'm not voting for Bernie in, in 2020. Um, but I did. I, I, I went to the Democratic National Convention in 2016. I did too, yeah. And I, I think we have videotape of this. I had a long conversation with, with a Bernie activist, and she was actually from Vermont, and she's, she's covered with Bernie pins and the— the whole nine yards and and I, Matt, I think you were the one that filmed this. Um, we, um, the more we talked, she wasn't a socialist at all. She was mm -hmm. actually a libertarian. Like mm -hmm. she she loved the Second Amendment and and she she doesn't like crony capitalism and all the things that at a very superficial level that that Bernie and Ron Paul would talk about the same stuff. Um, I think I think there's an opportunity there, and 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 maybe maybe. Build that up at the end. Let's let's be more positive as we as we scare the shit out of people with with the radical left and the radical there right. There are definitely you know in middle the, in the political sort of quadrant was so the lower left uh, corner that's uh, that there are sort of some Bernie supporter type people there that but are cool with a lot of libertarian goals. Yeah. That's something the uh, um, uh, what Brett Weinstein has talked about, who's a sort of member of the intellectual dark web, yeah. who's a Bernie supporter and a leftist, but it, it shares a lot of, has a lot of libertarian tendencies and really wants to work with libertarians. So that's something uh, something uh, definitely uh, I'm going to be all about. Panic Attack, how do we get a copy of this book? <laughs> you can pre-order it uh, at Barnes & Nobles or Amazon. Uh, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at uh, Robbie Suave, my name, and there's more information for how to do that there, and it's out in stores in June. Cool. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure.
Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.